Welcome to the Dr. J Show, a production of the Ruth Institute. The Ruth Institute is building an interfaith coalition to defend the family. We believe the best for children is mothers and fathers who cooperate in a lifelong union of love, surrounded by a culture that supports these aspirations. You can count on the Ruth Institute to know what they're talking about, and you can count on Dr. J to help you put your faith into action and make a difference. Dr. Stephen Baskerville is research fellow at the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society, the Independent Institute, and the Inter-American Institute. He holds a PhD from the London School of Economics and has held appointments at Patrick Henry College, Howard University, and Palacki University in the Czech Republic, plus Fulbright scholarships in Poland and Russia. He writes on political ideologies with an emphasis on religion, family policy, and sexuality, and is the author of The New Politics of Sex, as well as Taken into Custody and other works. Dr. Baskerville is widely recognized as a leading authority on fatherhood, family policy, and sexual politics, and his writings have appeared in the Washington Post, the Washington Times, the Independent Review, the Salisbury Review, Society, the American Conservative, Chronicles, Political Science and Politics, Touchstone, Human Events, Women's Quarterly, Catholic World Report, Crisis, American Spectator, The Spectator, The American Enterprise, National Review, and others. And now, for Dr. J's personal interview with Dr. Stephen Baskerville. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, and welcome to this edition of The Dr. J Show. I'm delighted to have my dear friend, Dr. Stephen Baskerville, on the line with me today. Dr. Baskerville, to my mind, is one of the great theorists of the problem of divorce, the political problems of divorce. And as you heard from his bio, he is well qualified to be talking about politics. Um, his first book was called Taken into Custody, and his latest book is called The New Politics of Sex. Steve, welcome so much to the Dr. J Show. It is my pleasure to be here. Great, great. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the problem of divorce. Well, the first book, Taken into Custody, focused narrowly on the, on the politics behind it. And that's what I discovered early on, was that there is a whole political dynamic behind the divorce um, e epidemic and, and the governmental machinery that, that administers it. There were a number of books that showed the legal problems and the shortcomings and the imperfections in the system, but nobody had really looked at the larger political dynamics, the interest groups behind it, who was, yeah, that's the one, the earlier book. And that focused on the, um, on the specifically on divorce, no-fault divorce, and the, the governmental machinery, the family courts, the social service agencies, um, the child support enforcement um, system, and all of that. And I realized that there were a lot of interests that were people were making money and people were increasing their power in the government and that there was a whole political it was closely connected to the political ideology of feminism so that was um that was the dynamic that i found behind the divorce system the second book expands out the scope quite a lot the new politics of sex because i realized that the pattern the, the phenomenon that i'd seen in the divorce system was part of a larger pattern that had governed, um, well, the sexual revolution generally, and the relations between men and women, uh, and the, I, the recent phenomenon like the Me Too phenomenon and the um, you know accusations of 
of sexual assault and, and rape on campuses and, and sexual uh, harassment, and now transgenderism and the new homosexual militancy, all of these things had a similar pattern to what I had already found in the divorce system. So what I'd focused on was only part of the elephant, so to speak, but the elephant had many more features than just divorce. Yes, yes. And, you know, in, in my work on the sexual state, um, I find in a way the same sorts of things, although the things I look at are a little bit different than what you look at, you know, because I'm concerned about the gender ideology and also the contraceptive ideology. So you're totally right. There's a whole set of patterns and, and it comes about because politics is a kind of system and the interests that get rolling in a in a political system, uh, the personal interests and so on, you set something in motion and it, and it goes in a predictable manner. And, and that's part of what you show about the, the whole divorce courts. Now, I know that a lot of people are interested right now in the family courts because of this case in Texas. Uh, uh, James, James Younger is the name of the little boy, but it's a, it's a custody dispute uh, between a man and a, and a, and a woman over their twin boys, and the woman says that one of the boys is really a girl. And so this was a big uh, cause, and hashtag save James was all over the place and so on. And most people were concerned about the transgender side of things, which is, of course, uh, worth being concerned about. But what I would really like to call attention to is the overwhelming power of the courts um, that made a lot of this possible. I mean, the woman was asking for some pretty outrageous things, and most people thought, oh, my gosh, she's crazy. What's wrong with her? But the reality is the court had the, had the power already. For a long time, the court has had the power to grant all the different kinds of things that she was asking for. So, Steve, tell us a little bit, um, well, tell us a little bit about the arbitrary nature of the family courts, how that works or, or, or doesn't work. Maybe work isn't even the right word for it. How does it operate? That'd be a better word. Right. That's a very good question. You put your finger on a very important point. Um, we have these, these cliches, you know, nasty custody battle. He said, she said, ugly, ugly uh, divorce. But it's not just two people. It's the, right. it's the government machinery. It's the courts. They create these and encourage these, these fights. Um, and that's, that's what's really going on here. Uh, none of this could be happening. The James case is a... Uh, is the tip of the iceberg. It's an right. unusually extreme case, but it's uh, there. There, there are thousands of cases with a similar kind of dynamic to them. Um, the courts come in and um, they take control of the children, and they hold them as a prize, essentially between the two parents. They offer them to to the one parent or both parents, and they encourage the two parents to bicker over the, over the over the prize. Um, who's going to Who's going to get the um, the prize that the courts are going to award? If the if the courts simply left the children in the custody of both parents to begin with, and there's problems with that, but it, they're not insurmountable problems, um, the problem would be would be would be much would be much simpler. Um, the whole point of marriage is that you are required to work things out with your spouse, and nothing, no no area is more important than the than the you know the upbringing of children. Right. And um, when parent when parents are forced to work together and compromise. And um, see the other's point of view. They, they they usually do it when the state comes along and, and starts favoring one of them, or one of them one minute, the other one the next minute, and and precipitating a cockfight. That's where this 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 these disasters come from. So um, in this particular case, um, clearly there's there's no um, the father has done nothing that I can see that has um, to warrant losing um, uh, the right to raise his children as he sees fit. 
Um, whether the mother has is, is a more complicated question. But 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 here's the thing that that jumped out at me when I first read your book. And this book, when was this book published, Steve? Because I I've I've been aware of your stuff for quite a while. I'm I'm just trying to remember here how long. I can't even. Two thousand was published in two thousand seven. Yeah. Two thousand seven. I was just looking that up. It's two thousand seven. So I've been aware of your stuff for a long time. And um, the 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 way we the way we could look at it is is this that. Um, if, like you said, if parents have to work together and there's no court system involved, um, they'll make compromises. Some sometimes one person will be happy, sometimes the other person will be happy, and so on. But the but but there's no there's no overriding force uh, taking command of things. What can happen in the family court is a perfectly innocent person can lose the rights to even see their own children. So it, would you speak Would you speak to the more routine case, okay? The James case is an extreme case, but let's talk about a, a kind of an ordinary family with ordinary um, dispute between them and the kind of thing that, that can often happen in the family courts. Can you just, just walk people through that a little bit? Right, right, because even the ordinary cases can become quite horrific and extreme. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and, and you know what I find, Steve? People don't believe it until they've seen it for themselves. Because when you go and you say, this is happening to me, people have a tendency to shun that person and say, um, oh, you must be a nut. Uh, maybe you had it coming. Uh, this is too uncomfortable. I don't even want to think about it. Um, but but it's going on all over the place. So go ahead. Give a typical case. Well, the typical case, one parent, um, and I'll assume cases where there are children involved, one parent. Um, decides to divorce. One parent makes a, a trip to a lawyer. One parent consults a uh, a family member, a lawyer. Um, it's it's not usually a case of um, you know two people gradually um, you know growing apart or the other the other cliches. Usually it's it's a grab. It's a power grab by one parent who has some connection with the legal system or with um, with feminist organizations or something like that. And that one parent, usually the mother, but not always. Um, learns uh, what you can get by being the first to file for divorce. And, and the system is such that the parent who files first has an advantage, usually over the other parent, oddly enough. So it's a, it's a game of what we in political science call prisoner's dilemma. Whoever mm -hmm. betrays the other one first wins. So basically every, every couple in America, every married couple should be suspicious of one another. Right. It's quite astounding the way yes. the courts. So this, they make it impossible to trust your own spouse because uh, if your spouse files before you do, there's a very good chance that he or she will get the, get the children and, 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 and the, the, the bulk of the assets. So you, it's in your interest to file to, to, to divorce first. But this is astounding that we've allowed this to, to, to um, this kind of legal uh, regime to, to uh, govern our, our family lives. But that is, that is the reality is some people call it a race to the courthouse. Right. Um, so typically one, one parent um, makes a, a grab, a power grab. No-fault divorce, people don't re recognize it, but no-fault divorce means one person can end the marriage for any reason and no re or no reason, but it's, it's unilateral right. divorce. Exactly. Um, this, this is a, a, a misconception, um, and many people think it was deceptive. It was brought in under deceptive pretenses. Um, many people thought and still think that it's a matter of divorce by mutual consent. That's even though right. nobody has done any has done anything uh, you know recognized grounds for divorce but it is not it is not divorce by mutual consent it is as you say unilateral divorce um, uh, in fact involuntary divorce 
one spouse yes. can, um, without any grounds, um, file for divorce, um, and it's automatically granted. Um, yes. And in fact, the spouse that, that files, as I've mentioned, uh, gets actually advantages from, from being the one who files first. There is some evidence that the, the spouse that files first gets certain advantages, uh, uh, especially if it's the woman, but sometimes even if it's the man. Um, the courts uh, reward those who, who provide business for them. And um, there is this, this, uh, this phenomenon where in many ways the, the, the one who files first uh, is more likely to get the, you know, the children, um, the bulk of the assets, uh, a, a generous child support award and so forth. So there's this. You know, I, I have heard from family family court family law people uh, that when a woman comes in and says I want a divorce, she's already made up her mind, and and you really can't intervene at that point with counseling because she's already made up her mind, and she's been planning for a long time, and this is part of what you're talking about. On one level, it looks like well she's desperate and uh, she's been working on working this out a long time, but uh, on another level. The, the structure of the legal system is encouraging this kind of, um, what we want to call it, an ambush almost, you know, that, mm -hmm. that you take the other person completely by surprise, that it's advantageous to take them by surprise. Is that Absolutely. fair to say, Steve? Very much so. Yes, very much so. Uh, there's an entire industry um, that is devoted to, you know, convincing people, especially women, that they have been abused, um, that they are the victim of a... Of of a, of a of a bad marriage, so so called, um, and that they um, they have nothing to to lose and everything to gain by filing for divorce. And by this industry, I mean lawyers, uh, I mean um, social workers, um, feminist organizations, um, so called battered women shelters, uh, and, and so forth. And um, and, and these, why do you these... call it? Hold on. Why do you call it so called battered women shelters, Steve? What do you mean to convey by saying that? Well, there have been a lot of exposés of, of battered women's shelters. They are a very dishonest uh, phenomenon. They're not really there to, to shelter uh, victims of, of domestic violence. They are there in many ways to encourage divorce and to help women get custody of children, um, even when they have not been abused in any way or certainly not the victims of any kind of violence. So they are, um, Donna Laframboise in the National Post in Canada did an extensive investigation and called these uh, these shelters uh, one-stop divorce shops mm -hmm. because they were there to help women um, file, expedite and, and facilitate divorce filings and to make sure that the women that filed for divorce got custody of their, their children and were able to exclude the, the children from seeing their father. Yes, yes. And now here's the point that I wanted to really zoom in on is that if we think in the natural order of things, a father and a mother both are concerned with their children, they both have rights to their children, they both have responsibilities to their children, and the child, and I'm used to looking at things from the child's perspective, the child has an interest in both parents. The child has a need for both parents. And in fact, you know, I would say that the love or the relationship between the parents, whatever that is, good, bad, or indifferent, the relationship between the parents is the foundation of the development of the child's personality, you know, that you're, you're, you're building your whole life on whether your mom and dad love each other, you know. And so uh, what what the system is doing or has done is to undermine the legal foundation of the permanence of, of that relationship. And so so talk about the innocent spouse or the the we sometimes talk about the abandoned spouse or the reluctantly divorced spouse. 
What what can happen to a person uh, when they get brought into the court system? Well, they essentially you essentially lose all of your rights. Uh, um, not only you lose the first thing you lose is your children. Right. And the first thing that a family court does when a divorce is filed, I mean, really, the first principle I say in the book, uh, uh, it's true, is the first principle of the divorce court is remove the father. Uh, as long as the family is intact, the courts have no role. The social workers have no role. The government has no role. Once the father is removed, everything else kicks in. Um, everyone else, uh, the government essentially seizes control of the children and the father, sometimes the mother, but usually the father, is excluded uh, from the child's life. Um, and everyone else uh, takes control. So it's it's really a grant of power. The mother is kind of established as a as a kind of a, a satrap, a kind of a you know a, a, a hired um, worker of, paid by the state, by paid right. by child support. And, right. and so it's a great it's a it's a very heady um, grant of power um, to the state. And of course, like any human being, um, like like most of us, power goes goes to goes goes to one's head very right. quickly. Right, um, right. So, as you say, the children have need of both parents. This, this is something everybody everybody says. But in in practice, um, by giving one parent this enormous rush of power, um, it's 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 a it's a huge temptation to abuse it. Right. Right. Even if the children even if the children suffer. Now, and you know, one thing that strikes me, and that particularly struck me in the Save James case, is that the 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 rationale for no fault divorce is well, gee. Figuring out whether somebody's committed adultery or not, that's too hard, that's too intrusive. We don't really, you know, uh, people, we're inducing people to lie, to say they committed adultery because they both agree, they're sensible people, they both agree they want this divorce. So why should we go through this charade uh, and trying to establish and make them manufacture proof and so on and so forth? How much easier to just dispense with all of that um, and grant the divorce? Mm -hmm. Well, what they don't, what they don't tell you is that now, once the once the divorce has been granted and the and the family courts are involved, now there are all kinds of regulations of family life that get introduced, and they're going to be collecting evidence on all those points. Um, so in James's case, the the mother was requesting mm -hmm. that the court enjoin the father, that is to say, prevent the father from cutting the little boy's hair. Because the little boy really wanted to be a little mm -hmm. boy, and so if dad cuts his hair or dresses him in boys' clothes or whatever, that that makes him more of a boy, and the mother thought that was objectionable. And so she wanted the court to make him uh, dress James in girls' clothes and never cut his hair. So I'm thinking to myself, criminy, they're going to be investigating that for the rest of his life. They're going to be having the power to say, you cut the kid's hair. You can't do that. You know, this is this is evidence. This is investigating. This is, but it's more intrusive. It's not less intrusive. By the oh, time they get to that, absolutely, no, certainly. Uh, the family courts are the most intrusive, the most invasive uh, government machinery that that has ever existed in in the English speaking democracies. I mean, it's it's amazing how intrusive they are. They micromanage the child's uh, childhood uh, until they reach the eighteen at the age of eighteen, and sometimes longer than that. So this argument that um, that was brought in uh, to rationalize no-fault divorce, I think, uh, was highly dishonest. Um, they could have legislated divorce by mutual consent, but what they they went much further than that. And um, as you say, um, well, no-fault divorce is simply a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. You you cannot administer justice in a court system without some consideration of, of fault. 
and and the the um, the intrusiveness that was thrown out the front door has re-entered through the back door uh, right. in a much, much more uh, much more invasive form than than than, than what originally existed. So it's um, yes, these arguments are extremely dishonest, and and as you say, the the the, the violation of not only parental rights but um, you know the, the family family privacy and the uh, you know simply the the privacy of the household and the individual are just um, beyond belief and beyond anything else in our society. So, um, so have you followed this this particular case, this James Younger case? I don't know. I know you've been overseas. You spend a lot of time overseas with all of your different things that you do, Steve. Have you followed the Save James case at all? I wonder if you have anything particular to say about that. I have followed it a bit. I don't know all the details, but it is, in many ways, it is a, a typical um, divorce case. It is one parent, um, usually the parent that has the the most radical political ideas. Um, are, is being favored by the courts, right? Um, and allowed and allowed to, um, uh, you know, impose an ideology on a child. Now, you know, when parents agree on an ideology, that's one thing. Um, right. To, to raise their children, I believe parents should should be allowed to, the privacy to raise their children as as they, they see fit. But the power to exclude one parent in order that you can raise children, you know, have a monopoly over the decisions of the children because the government has forced the other parent out of the family, that's not family privacy. That's the opposite of family privacy. It's an invasion of family privacy by the state and the um, you know, the destruction of one parent's parental rights and the, and the creation of the other parent as a, as a kind of omnipotent, um, you know, kind of satrap, a uh, kind of um, puppet of the, of, the, of the state, of the courts. Yes, and it and it does seem that some ideologies are more favored than others. The thing that was striking about the Save James case is that it, the, the mother was getting, seemed to be getting what she wanted. Um, she had a, a, a unilateral decision making, it seemed like. And then this big outcry came out. You know, there was a big public outcry, in part because the father went to the media, and there were a handful of media um, outlets that showed up in the courtroom. Um, and in addition to that, our friend Jeff Morgan, I don't know if you remember Jeff Morgan from the time that you were at our summit for survivors of the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, we we gave mm-hmm. Jeff the award for activist of the year. And when you see what he did, you can see why we thought mm-hmm. this guy's a real go-getter. He showed up uh, and and interviewed the father and got a lot of the father's information on tape and you know put it out in the public uh, view and so on and so forth and so that generated some accountability I would call it accountability <laughs> on the court you know that that hey somebody's watching somebody's watching this right. thing and then she backed off the judge backed off um, but the judge put a gag order on both parents that neither parent is allowed to talk to the media until the boys turn 18. Now, what do you think about this gag order situation, Steve? Well, this, this again, uh, as, as a number of people have commented on this, I've seen uh, it's obviously a direct violation of the First Amendment. Right. Um, these, these gag orders and the, and the family courts, just back up a moment, family courts generally operate uh, in a, on a level of secrecy. Uh, they yes. exclude the public, they exclude the press. Sometimes even family members are excluded. And they claim that this is... Um, to protect family privacy. Well, this is exactly the opposite. It is not. It, it, it provides the cloak to invade family privacy with impunity. Because let's not forget what's happening here. The government is taking control of the family. So right. the, fa- the family's privacy is not being preserved by these, these uh, gag orders and this, and this secrecy. It's being, a cloak is being set up so that government officials can invade the family 
and destroy the, the rights of parents without anyone seeing what's going on. So this is a, a, a this is highly cynical. Uh, and and the, from what I've seen in the Save James case, this is this is a typical example of, of exactly that. Because none of this would be happening if the judge had not, in the first place, excluded, you know, set one parent, the parent who wanted to raise James as a boy, um, at, a, at a disadvantage. So, I, I mean, I have heard that people can go into the, into the family court, that you can walk into a court and watch what's going on, but generally they don't. And there are cases where the court will exclude people from the courtroom right. and so on and so forth. How about the documents that come out of the right. court? Are those matter of public record? Like, like could, could you go... Could, could an interested per person go use a Freedom of Information Act inquiry or something like that and find out what the court had done in a particular case? Do you know? Yes, yes, they can do that. They, they can do that. I believe so. I mean, in, in all the cases I've seen, you you can you can do that. They do. Um, you're right. Court, you can walk into a family court, but they will exclude you at the drop of a hat. I mean, the slightest request by one counsel, one attorney uh, will result in people being excluded. Um, so it's very easy to to seal the court off from from public scrutiny. Um, but so the it, records generally are, yeah, the records generally are public. Yes, they or, or in principle they're public. It's not like you can go down. It's not like you can easily go down to the library and find them or something. But in principle, the records are public. Is yeah, that the right? records are public. But this often, yeah. But this is another example of how, um, in fact, it, it can be a violation of family privacy because. In fact, in some cases, in most cases of divorce, one of the parents uh, was simply sitting there minding his own business or her own business. And so for, for the government to come in and start interrogating that parent about how they live their life, how they raise their children, what they do in the privacy of their own home, and and then um, and do all this, by the way, oftentimes under a cloak of secrecy, so nobody can watch what's going on, and then create documents out of this, which anybody can access. This is, this is not necessarily a, this, this too could be a, construed as a violation of family privacy. Right, um, right, so right. so it's, it's, it's very questionable that, that anybody's privacy is being protected or if the courts even want to protect anybody's privacy. You know, um, Dr. Baskerville, I'd like to change gears just a moment uh, and ask you about a subject I don't mm -hmm. know very much about. Now, you can tell I'm I'm all over this one topic that we've been talking about so far, and we've written about it, and we have resources on it here at the Ruth Institute and so on. But one area I don't know much about, and if you don't know anything about it, that's fine. We'll just edit this all out. But, but I'm interested in the child support system. It seems to me I have encountered mm -hmm. the fact that there are federal laws about, chi uh, about child support in the federal government is somehow involved in money getting from the father to the mother or something. Um, can you tell us something about how that federal child support system works and what incentives it might create that might be good, bad, and different? What What do you know about that, Steve? Because I, I don't know. Well, I do. Yes, I do have a chapter in both the books on, on, on child support. And I always say that if you know anyone who does not believe in a personal devil, just um explain to them the child support system because it, it had to be created by some kind of evil genius. It's it's too diabolical to have come about um, spontaneously. No, the child support system is, is is just again another feature of the divorce machinery that is just just beyond belief. It is it is uh, uh, it has nothing to do with with providing for children. It's basically a system of plundering parents. Um, once you get control of a of a child, um, you can then demand virtually any amount of money on the part of the um, father, usually. Uh, and he is forced to pay on pain of incarceration. He is reduced often to, to penury, homeless, 
homelessness, um, and oftentimes to incarceration without trial. Am I that? No, the child support system is is the most cynical uh, government machinery I've I've ever witnessed. I, I argue that it is the most repressive um, government machinery ever created in English speaking democracies. One often yeah. hears though from from mothers who say he's not paying. I'm not getting my money. Uh, I'm not getting enough, and so on and so forth. So how can those things both be true? It's a complicated system. Here's how they, here's how they can both be true. The child support system was never created to provide for children, oddly enough. It was created to reimburse the government for welfare. That's right. That was the original purpose okay. of it. I remember so that, when, yeah. And it was originally... And it was originally intended to, to reimburse for low in income, obviously, welfare cases. So the, the okay. purpose was to, now, the, the, most of the, the cases that were created involved low income fathers and mothers who were making very small amounts of money living in the, in the, you know, the inner cities. And um, the aim was to get money out of these fathers, some of whom were highly impecunious, um, making you know, very small amounts and, and getting, recuperating the, 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 recouping the welfare costs. Um, now, uh, what happened was uh, um, the child support system was, uh, th this, this never was very successful. Um, it, didn't, it didn't result in any additional um, payments. It didn't result in any more money for the, for the mothers uh, or the children. Um, what it did, what it, they did discover at one point was that they could expand the child support system to include a huge number of middle-class families who were not on welfare at all, but were essentially uh, uh, products of, of divorce. And the federal government became involved in this by paying the state's money, taxpayers' money, for every child support dollar they collected. Okay, this was supposed to give the states incentive to aggressively collect child support. Well, they didn't collect child support from the low-income fathers in the inner cities who mostly didn't have it. Instead, what they did was they, they, they created a system, they expanded it, into, to, to collect child support from middle-class fathers who were the products of divorce, most of whom paid their child support faithfully. Um, but by collecting the money from the middle-class fathers, they could channel the, those payments, which originally those payments had been going from the father to the mother. Now the payments went from the father to the state and from the state to the mother. By channeling those payments through the state, the, the states could collect huge windfalls of subsidies from the federal government at taxpayer expense and use those subsidies for anything they want, balancing their budget, you know, um, new courtrooms, you know, golf courses for the judges, whatever they want, they could do this. Um, so it became very corrupt. It gave the states an incentive to encourage um, single parent homes. It gave the states incentives to encourage divorce because the more divorces you had, the more fatherless children you had, the more ch child support payments would, fun, would work their way through the state machinery, collecting federal incentive payments and filling the state coffers. So states learned that they could balance their budgets, make a lot of money by encouraging divorce and making sure the fathers saw their children as little as possible so that their child support payments would be as high as possible. So hold on, hold on right there. Oh, golly, golly. So the incentive structure it, says, the federal government says to the states, we will reward you for collecting the money from the non-custodial parent, but we will not right. particularly reward you for get, making sure that the money gets to the custodial parent. The amount of money that comes right. from the father may or may not ever make it to, to, to the other parent. And that's not what they're Correct. being rewarded for. It's, it's, not, it's not, does she get the money? It's, do we get the money from him? That's what it is. 
Correct, correct. Especially in the case of the low-income parents, that money, the mother might never see it because right. it just goes into the welfare to reimburse right. the welfare system. Right, right. So the low-income mothers might very well claim that they're not getting anything. The middle-class mm -hmm. mothers probably are getting, you know, mm -hmm. what they would say the same as they would get otherwise. But it, yes, it allows the states to collect money from the federal government subsidies um, at the, the tax. But we're all paying for our taxes. Right. Um, so it gives the state on several level. It gives the states incentives to destroy the lives of children. Okay, first of all, it gives the states an incentive to encourage as many divorces as possible. Once because they get more of child support money. It encourages the states to keep the fathers away from their children as much as possible rather than having you know, joint custody because then the states get more child support money. Hold, hold it right there on that point right there because I'm, I'm seeing people going through this kind of thing. That if, there, if the custody, because if you haven't been through this meat grinder, you might not realize this is how it works. It, it, let's suppose custody was equally shared, then in principle, neither parent owes anything to anyone. And so the, all these, all this federal payment machinery and so on is a non, is a non-starter that it doesn't, doesn't come into play. But if you make it so one parent predominantly has the children and the other parent does not, then the one who has less custody must then pay. And, and cool. that's how, and that's how part of how this incentive structure works. That's when people were saying, Somebody, somebody in the Correct. Save James case made this kind of point that there's an incentive mm -hmm. for there to be a losing parent and a winning parent, and the losing parent ends up in this uh, vice grip that you're talking about, right? So I just want to make sure people Correct. got that that structure. It is that it is complicated, but you have you've explained it precisely. Um, that's right. It 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 encourages the state. The states have an incentive to give the mother the incentive to make sure that the you know that there's a divorce that the children are kept away from the father as much as possible. And there's also an incentive to make the, the child support payment as onerous as possible on the father. Because first of all, that gives a more generous reward to the mother, which encourages her to divorce. Secondly, it means more money passes through the child support machinery, collecting more federal dollars. And when the father is arrested and incarcerated, the, the states get federal money for, for his imprisonment as well. So it's it gives the state an incentive to encourage the children to have their, their home broken up, their, not see their father, and have their father turned into a criminal. Um, this is the incentive structure of the child support system. It is, it is mind-boggling. It is. It is mind-boggling. And, and I have noticed that people don't believe it until they're actually caught up in it. And, and that's part of what we're trying to do as an organization at the Ruth Institute is to help people be aware of it before you get in the, in the grip of it, you know, and, and to be more compassionate when you encounter a friend or neighbor going through this. Hey, maybe it's not all their fault. You know, maybe they're not exaggerating. Exactly. Maybe, this, maybe this is the truth, you know. And that way of marginalizing people, um, you know, the, the media and academia and a lot of the non-government, that I, I think of these people as being part of the deep state, but they're not officially governmental entities, right? Um, but the but the media and academia and the entertainment industry and so on that paint divorce in a particular light, they're propping this whole thing up, you know, because they're they're disguising what's really going on or making it very hard for people to see what's really going on. Exactly. And I have especially little patience for our conservatives who claim to be, you know, upholding the family and defending the family and, and opposed to the divorce system. And yet they jump on this bandwagon about deadbeat dads. And there's absolutely no uh, um, evidence that the phenomenon of deadbeat dads is anything other than a creation of the state. 
So, um, you know, it's it's a very lazy to, to, to just yes. jump on this bandwagon and start, you know, uh, making cheap shots at so-called deadbeat dads is a very lazy uh, and counterproductive well, approach it, to this. It, it, it allows, it, it, anybody who does that, it allows them to avoid confronting the wrath of the, you know, the kind of establishment feminism, what I would call establishment feminism, because a lot of people yes. call themselves feminists. So I like to be careful about using that word, but I think we can safely say that there's such a thing as establishment feminism, right? Um, and people don't want to encounter that. People don't want to have to fight that, have to deal with that. And so this is the tap dance that they do to avoid that. So, well, you know, we, we, we love the family and we love stable Correct. families, but it's those deadbeat dads, you know, without any understanding that some of those guys uh, got kicked out of their family. And it's, it's no service to anybody to lump together fatherlessness as if it made no difference why the father wasn't in the picture, <laughs> you, you know, um, especially from a, psychologically, it makes a difference to the child. As, as a matter of public policy, it makes a difference. You know, what what is the cause of fatherless? So, well, maybe, maybe this is a good uh, time to ask you this, Steve. Um, uh, are, are there pro-family organizations that are getting it right? Uh, do you have any favorites? Uh, you know, because I don't want to bash anybody, but is, is anybody doing it right that you can kind of um, commend to our listeners and viewers? Sorry, this will sound flattering, but the Ruth Institute, and, and that's about it. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm quite astounded to say this, but the leading organizations that one thinks of as far as defending the family will not fight this bullet and will not yeah. get into this. And this is why you are to be commended for what you're doing here, because this is really courageous and, and pioneering. Because this this problem, the crisis of the family, will not be solved. Will not be. It'll continue to get worse until we we face precisely these issues: no fault right. divorce, um, the, the child support system, the domestic violence hoax. Um, I mean. All of this is; these are the props that, that that are these are these are the factors that are that are causing the destruction of the family. And until we're we're willing to face this squarely and and take these things on, um, the crisis of the family and and cases like Save James are just going to get you know proliferate and, and get worse. So you know the, the issues that I raise in my books and you know the issues you're you're bringing up here are absolutely critical. That, you know that, that family groups take this on because I mean there's absolutely no way to, to to solve this uh, otherwise. Well, and you know, I, it sometimes drives me crazy that that, that church people, well-meaning Christian people, sometimes congregations, sometimes, you know, uh, institutions and so on, they want to help uh, young couples have good communication skills and prepare them for marriage and so on and so forth. And, you know, and I, I feel like, you know, hey guys, that's all great, that's important, but we need to deal, we as adult members of society, okay, I'm not a newlywed, you're not a newlywed, Steve, um, we as adult <laughs> members of society need to, to tell young people, you know, hey, look, I don't like it, but this is the fact. The fact is you can have the best communication skills in the world and things can still go completely south and the government's not going to help you. And, and we as adult members of society need to say, hey, we got some bad public policy here and uh, the incentives are all wrong and we got to do something about that. It's not fair to the young people to tell them if you just have good communication skills, it's all going to be good. Yeah. That's right. And that's what one of the perhaps the biggest, um, you know, failure on all the part of all of us is treating this as a therapeutic matter. I mean, this, right. the cliches, um, the platitudes about divorce, <laughs> all treated as, as a matter of, of therapy and psychotherapy. And it's given a, a stranglehold of the therapists over, over all of us in many ways. It's not. It's a, it's a failure of public policy. It's the creation of, of government policy. And it absolutely has to be uh, uh, confronted 
on that level. Um, yes. It, it, we need to have changes, changes in the government policy. We need to have media investigations of this. We need to have um, you know, the bar associations need to become more critical of what's going on here mm -hmm. um, because you cannot just you cannot just talk about, you know, more communication and more, you know, workshops and, and things like that. Uh, right. it's, it's, it, it involves, uh, you know, violations of people's constitutional rights on the most basic level. Um, and it involves, uh, you know, the, the violation of people's uh, homes, family privacy, parental rights, their relationship with their children. Uh, and it's 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 a creation of government and it's got to be solved that way. Right, right. You can't you you can't wish away bad public policy. You've got to replace bad pu bad public policy with better public policy. But and until people realize what's going on, they're not going to have the will to do that because you know it is it's it's an uphill battle. There are a lot of entrenched interests here. You know, Steve. One of the little projects right. that we came up with here at the Ruth Institute is we've got a petition uh, to the Secretary of State and to President Trump, and this is you know. This was kind of this is something that kind of, we kind of stumbled over that that the Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo has created a commission on unalienable rights to advise him um, in in dealing with foreign governments and intergovernmental organizations and things like that. And he's put some pretty good people on there. Marianne Glendon is a serious natural law, natural rights person, you know, as opposed to the kind of human rights establishment that kind of invent, turns turns mm -hmm. preferences into into rights and so on. So these are serious people. So so we at the Ruth Institute, we came up with a petition to them um, to to uh, urge the Commission on Unalienable Rights to try to make the family great again. And that's what we're telling our people, you know, to make the family great again with the mm -hmm. little red cap and the whole thing. Um, but the rights mm -hmm. we want to talk about, uh, we have, of course, the right to life. Um, as, as one of them. But but the, the very first one that we have on our list, Steve, is the right of every child to a relationship with his or her natural mother and father, except for an unavoidable tragedy. And we want to get people talking about that. The kids have a right to their parents. And divorce mm. and sing planned single motherhood and, you know, planned third-party reproduction, those kinds of things are a deep violation of the person's right to a relationship with their parents. Um, I, I, there aren't too many people who talk like this <laughs> besides us at the Ruth no. Institute. There's another organization, Them Before, Them Before Us, talks like this to some extent. But, but um, what do you think about putting it in these, in the, in these terms of um, unalienable rights? Well, I think it it's certainly resonates on that level because these are basic rights. I mean, you know, there's something visceral that, you know, when we hear about children being wrenched away from from loving parents you know there's something that you know pulls in our heartstrings and and rightly so um it's a, it's a horrible thing to, to to suggest in any society when when you know when we when we had the border the border crisis people um some groups kind of cynically use that same uh, ploy to undermine immigration policies um but that testified to the extent to which you know we, we all feel that um you know pre pre the right the bond between parents and children should be in some sense inviolable, should be sacred, uh, barring some, you know, some catastrophe or some egregious uh, crime on the part of the parents. So um, I, I think that's right. I think it should be a, you know, a bedrock, um, right, you know, a, 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 a right of, uh, you know, parental, parental rights and the rights of children to their parents. Um, I think it's, it's extremely important. And it's, it's more than extremely important. It's, it's, a, it's potentially a very efficacious way to deal with this. I mean, what I said before about as long as we put this on the level of therapy and psycho, you know, psych, psych, psychology, um, there's no real solution to the to the family crisis. Um, it's just a, a lot of you know a lot of 
talk and a lot of um, you know feel good feel good uh, platitudes. But when you start seeing it as a matter of public policy and government abuse, then you start seeing that there are concrete, tangible ways that we can do something about this. We can right. actually solve this problem, and you know, putting it in terms of of the you know the rights of individuals um, to their children or to their parents. Is, 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 I think, a very good way of doing it. Very appropriate, yes. Well, good, good. I'm, I'm going to uh, recruit you to sign our petition, Steve, <laughs> so, okay. so that people know, so that people know. But, you, you know, um, it, it, we're coming to the end of our time together, and so I, I, what we always like to do on the Dr. J Show is to give people something to do. Um, it's very important that we not mm-hmm. just stir people up and, and have them all upset or mad or something. But, but is there something, do you have some action items for our viewers, Steve? Some, what can people do about all of this? There's a few things people can do. I think the, most, the best thing I can think of um, is put pressure on the media. And when I say the media, I mean not just the mainstream media, but the you know, the conservative media or the Christian media or the, I don't know, the civil liberties media, people who, you know, the, the media that are, that, that are investigate, investigate violations of, of human rights or, or, or individual rights. But I don't think anything's going to happen without a public outcry. And I think there will be a public outcry when people find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to both put pressure on the traditional media and create new media like like you're doing here and like you know, people like Jeff Morgan are doing, um, you know, the use of videos, the use of, um, of alternative, alternative media, social media. Um, I think it's, it's tremendously important, um, to, you know, to, to, to appeal to people. Cause I think once people understand what's going on, they're just, they're horrified. Um, and they will, they will respond. Yes. And you know, um, there was, there were three, um, news organizations who were in the courtroom throughout the Save James case. One of them was LifeSite News, uh, one of them was a Russian station, and one of them was some local Texas alternative uh, organ- news organization. But because of those guys, plus uh, G- people like Jeff and so on, um, there really was a big outcry. So it's very important uh, that people do that. I mean, I think the, the Save James petition had almost 90,000 signatures on it or something like that. I mean, they really got some traction with this thing. Uh, so so if, if, you're, if you're worried about Save James, we really encourage you to look beyond the transgender aspect of that thing and look at the whole problem of the runaway family court system because mm-hmm. that machinery is coming after you. It's not just going after... Uh, somebody that you think is completely crazy. It can be turned on anybody. That's what people need to understand, to my mind. Um, So, you know, another thing I'd like to encourage people to do is that uh, we, at the Ruth Institute, we have every year a summit for survivors of the sexual revolution. And this past spring, Dr. Baskerville was one of our speakers. He was the keynote speaker on the subject of divorce. And we had survivors of divorce, including abandoned spouses, including children of divorce, including people who had had horrible experiences with the family courts. So um, I want to invite everybody to plan to come to the Survivor Summit next summer. The next one will be July 17th through 19th, 2020. And put that on your calendar. You need to come to Lake Charles and and be part of the next Survivor Summit because this is where we're going to be putting our heads together and trying to get something done together. Anything else, Steve? Uh, that you think people can do that would be particularly helpful? Of course, they should all buy your book, okay? They should buy The New Politics of Sex, uh, which is Dr. Baskerville's right. most recent book. Well, I would urge people to take, not only to, 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 to buy the book and read it, but to take the parts in it that they find especially close 
interest to them or interesting and explore them further and use them because the book is not definitive. It does, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't deal with everything. The point of the book is to show that how all of these different things are interrelated uh, and how they're, you know, different patterns have, have emerged in different aspects of the sexual revolution. So I hope that other scholars and journalists and just ordinary people who have the, you know, the, the bent to, to do research will take parts of that book and, you know, use it to take a chapter or a section and write a whole book of your own on on what's in there and connect it with all the other books on other aspects of it so that we have a, a coherent movement here that is, um, you know, that is that, that, that I think is difficult to, to refute, that is impossible to ignore. Well, Steve, spoken like a true scholar, you want everybody to go buy, to buy a book, read a book, and write their own book. Um, but you can also get involved in more grassroots ways. You know, um, if there are petitions about, you need to follow them. There are some good news organizations mm -hmm. that you need to be following. You need to sign up for the Ruth Institute's weekly newsletter, uh, like us on Facebook, and of course, subscribe to the Dr. J Show so you know what are you know what else is going on. I'll also put in mm -hmm. a mention for my book, The Sexual State. Um, the sexual state is is similar in that it it tries to put pieces together, you know, rather than just look at one atrocity after another. What are the patterns? What makes this possible? What keeps this thing cooking? You know, and one third of the book is about divorce. I mean, that's the whole. It's it's a huge part of why we are where we are, um, and and behind that ideology, behind the whole machinery that that Steve is talking about, is the idea that the kids are resilient. You know, kids are so resilient that. Mom and dad can split up and go their own way and, and bring in new partners and so on. The kids will be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it, you know. So that's another aspect of this of this whole, uh, of what makes it possible, that part of the cultural milieu that makes this possible, uh, what Steve's talking about. Steve, any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I think there's a, a lot of people that have um, abdicated their responsibility, and I think we should all be putting pressure on them. Um, you mentioned the churches, for example. This should be a, this is an issue of church-state relations, if there ever was one. Uh, it's yeah. time for the church to stand up and claim their turf from the state. It's in, uh, the, my colleagues in the academic world have shamelessly ignored this, even in the in the Christian academic world and in the conservative mm -hmm. academic world. They've simply let this go by. I've already mentioned the, the journalistic profession that has has ignored this. The the, the, the watch. Watchdogs. The people we expect to be the watchdogs of society have become the lapdogs of the state, and um, you know they're the ones that people need to put put pressure on. The ch I, and those were the other ones I would mention. The first, the, the church, the universities, um, schools, uh, the, the, and the media. I mean, these are the ones that need to be. Um, you know, they need to have their their feet held to the fire. Well, Dr. Baskerville, thank you so very much for being my guest here on the Dr. J Show. And I know this is going to be enlightening to a lot of people. Um, in addition to this broadcast, we have a recording of Dr. Baskerville's talk at the Summit for Survivors of the Sexual Revolution, which you can find on the Ruth Institute YouTube page right now. And you can uh, you can share that uh, with your friends as well. So, so, Steve, thank you so much for being my guest. And, um, oh, there was one last question I wanted to ask you. Because of the Ruth Institute... Um, we are uh, we're an interfaith organization. We we really think of ourselves as being an interfaith mm -hmm. coalition to defend the family. What's your faith tradition, just so our people can mm -hmm. kind of um, relate to you? Um, I'm not um, rigid about it, but I generally I'm uh, um, uh, Anglican, uh -huh. um, Church of England. Um, although my wife is is, is um, Orthodox, and so I often go to um, uh, attend Orthodox, and I, I'm very I'm very uh, moved by Orthodox. 
Orthodox services as well. So uh, I'm fairly ecumenical myself, actually. <laughs> well, I'm just, Orthodox- as a Christian. Yes, yeah, yes. You're a committed Christian uh, with those with with those kinds of heritage, with that kind of heritage that you just described. Yes. Well, thank you so very much for being with us, Steve, and uh, blessings on your work and your future endeavors. It's my pleasure. God bless you and your work, too. You've been watching The Dr. J Show, featuring a personal interview with Steve Baskerville. Bear wrote, God compared the church to a marriage. Until the church realizes the covenant of spouses is vital for the health of the church, the community, it will continue to decline in relevance. Now for the most important part of our program, your action item for this week. As Dr. Baskerville exhorted us, demand that the media address this issue. Pressure the media, write them, call them. Even Christian media have ignored the impact of easy divorce on society, particularly children. Create new media. Nothing will happen without a public outcry. Another thing you can do is to mark July 17th through the 19th on your calendar. It's the next Summit for Survivors of the Sexual Revolution. It'll take place in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and we want you to come. Sign the Ruth Institute's petition to President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to make the family great again. The petition particularly emphasizes the right of every child to a relationship with his or her natural mother and father except for cases of an unavoidable tragedy. And check out Dr. Baskerville's talk at the 2019 Summit for Survivors. And that's our action item for this week. Secure attachments between a child and each of his or her parents builds the foundation for the development of the child's personality. In the child's little world, mother and father are the most important and powerful people. Parents act as stand-ins for God himself. And from this most basic relationship, the child develops a sense of himself as a social and spiritual being. Is the world a safe place for me? Do I really belong? Am I worthy of love? Divorcing parents may say to their child, we still love you, we just don't love each other anymore. But the child of their parent is half of who they are. The child cannot make sense of these contradictory claims because they're not really true. The parent creating the separation is telling the child, I want something else more than I want a relationship with your other parent, that is, with half of you. And in their hearts, the kids know it. It's no wonder the children are upset. It's no wonder all these pathologies develop. It's no wonder they don't feel good and are doing badly in school. They can't make sense of the impossible situation. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
You've been listening to the Dr. J Show, a production of the Ruth Institute. The Ruth Institute equips Christians to defend the family and build a civilization of love. Check out our website at ruthinstitute.org for helpful resources and support. Join us on Facebook. Our podcasts can also be found online at ruthinstitute.org. I'm Father Mark Hodges. Thank you for watching.